I'm Gordon Stewart, and this is episode 6 of Tales from Weird Scotland. A Sad Tale's Best for Winter I have one of sprites and goblins. Shakespeare's A Winter's Tale was written in 1611 in the reign of King James VI and I. Of course, Shakespeare's works feature some of the best-known literary supernatural elements, from soothsaying hags to Macbeth's murdered King Duncan, appearing at a dinner table like some misbehaving drunken uncle, only more gory and fatal. Shakespeare may not have invented the winter ghost story any more than M.R. James and Dickens' Christmas Carol of 1843 was also not unprecedented. Dickens himself reminisced about his own childhood Christmases of ghost stories by the fireside. They're part of a long-lived collective cultural heritage which knows that Christmas is a time for chilling tales of skeletons and spectres, beasties and bogles. Lost in the pagan past, perhaps, folk tales for winter, told beside the safety and warmth of the hearth, helped pass the long, dark nights, especially in the north of Europe, in nations like Scotland, where winter darkness falls in the mid-afternoon. Emphasised and enhanced through mass communications of the 19th century, from cheap newspapers and serialised stories to mass-produced novels, it is in Victoria's reign that the idea of a Christmas ghost story really took hold. Resurrected more recently in part by the BBC through their televised M.R. James stories, among others, the idea of a Christmas phantom is part of our modern festive tradition, as much as trees, holly, advent calendars and turkey. Their original meanings mostly forgotten or overlooked, but still enjoyed. Perhaps a warning to the curious is at the heart of each retelling of every tale retold. Or maybe this is an echo of Old Yule, the darkest festival of the ancient kingdoms of Europe, when the veil between living and dead was stretched very thin indeed, and stories and songs were an everyday part of family and village life. Having said all this, it's actually quite hard to find a report of supposed hauntings taking place at Christmas. The ghost of one John Leith, Laird of the beautiful old Leith Hall in Aberdeenshire, may be one such spirit, shot in cold blood or possibly in a duel. On Christmas Day 1763, he is said to wander around the quiet, picturesque mansion of Leith Hall. He once scared the bejingles out of one overnight guest in 1968, 
apparently appearing at the end of their bed, his bloody head swathed in bandages. His haunting, though, does not appear to be confined solely to the anniversary of his untimely demise. Elsewhere, though, the folklore and traditions of some places indicate that spirits were vanquished by Christmas, the holy opposite of Halloween. The wonderfully named Tristram P. Coffin in his 1973 Book of Christmas Folklore mentions this old tradition, but notes a number of other traditions associated with Christmas. At midnight, bees were said to hum the 100th Psalm, and cattle bend their knees bowing to the newborn Christ child. A person born on Christmas Day could see the spirits of the dead. A windy Christmas Day indicates good fortune to come and the chime of ringing bells from the church towers or handbells are said to dispel and terrify evil spirits at Christmas. And there are countless more. In Scotland, however, things were somewhat different. Christmas was not a great celebration for the Scots until recent times. Following the Protestant Reformation of 1560, Feast days and holy days were abandoned as relics of Catholicism, and this included Yule with its pagan overtones. The Parliament of Scotland went so far as abolishing the superstitious Yule vacation in the 17th century, for all time coming, perhaps indicating that some of the people had maintained their forbidden festivities long after 1560. It is still very much within living memory, 1958 in fact, that Christmas even became a holiday, a day off for workers in Scotland. Boxing Day was as late as 1978. Now, of course, in the age of TV and mass media, there's little difference between Scotland and, say, England in terms of Christmas. Perhaps, though, we must look further back to the very early days of Scotland's story to understand the importance of the bleak midwinter. December 21st marks the longest night of the year, the winter solstice. For our early ancestors, the movement of the sun and moon held particular significance. In Kilmartin Glen, Argyll, some 4,000 years ago, the people living there began to consciously change the landscape around them in order to record the movement of the sun and the passing of time and their ancestors with standing stones, stone circles, cairns, and a henge. Some of these monuments seem to align to the winter and summer solstice, the longest and shortest days. Indeed, the Neolithic burial site, Maze Howe, in the Orkney Islands, built nearly 5,000 years ago, demonstrates just this. The main chamber is buried in a mound of earth, accessed by a cramped and narrow passage, but on the shortest day of the year, the sun aligns 
just so that it illuminates the back wall of the burial chamber. Another tomb in Newgrange, County Meath in Ireland has the same solstitial properties, indicating that this was no happy accident, but the deliberate intention of the Neolithic craftspeople. These are often magical and beguiling places on a grand scale. The effect on the people and their landscape must have been spectacular. What significance they attached to them and what role these sites played in their belief and ritual, in addition to burial places of the dead, can only be guessed at. December 25th was, before changes to the calendar, originally the day held to be the winter solstice. The birth of Jesus replaced the pagan festival of old, some 300 years after Christ. The Romans' week-long Saturnalia and the feast honouring the rebirth of the sun changed to heralding the Son of God. Many of the customs associated with the first, feasting and decorating homes with evergreens, transferred to the new celebration. Now that we have brushed away some of the earth from the roots of traditions on these, the shortest days, let's indulge in the time-honoured tradition, a dark tale for a dark season. On Sunday the 28th of December 1879, a number of passengers bought their tickets in the trim little bookings office of Burnt Island Station, making their way to the platform to wait for the next train to Dundee. It was a miserable night, with a storm raging in off the cold sea as the passengers gathered in the warmth of the waiting room with its cheerful fire. Later, folk would say it was the worst storm in living memory. But that did not deter the crew of the next departure. A long train of some six carriages pulled by a mighty steam engine. The engine, a North British Railway 224, had made good speed earlier that day under the driver, David Mitchell, and fireman, John Marshall. Peering out into the darkness, the travellers would be looking forward to a glimpse of the great new Tay Bridge, the longest bridge in the world. A marvel of engineering which had opened to great celebrations the previous year. A graceful curved bridge, the Tay crossing was perhaps less monumental than the later great Fourth Bridge would be but had seen a huge increase of traffic on the railway and was a symbol of pride for Dundee and for Scotland, stretching over two miles across the Firth of Tay. The train halted at the small Wormut station in Fife, just before crossing the river. A baton passed to the engine crew ensured that only one train crossed the long bridge at a time. There was only a single track, and collision would be a horror that must be avoided. The baton was passed by the station staff, 
a signalman trying his hardest to watch through the ferocity of the storm. On board, a 37-year-old schoolmaster, David Nish, was travelling home to Dundee with his little daughter, Bella, aged five. It would already have been approaching Bella's bedtime, being just a little after seven o'clock when the train departed. David's wife had not been happy about the trip, especially in such poor weather. Bella, though, was bound to be excited for crossing the great new marvel of the bridge. There was, however, very little to see out of the carriage window in such a terrible storm. There were a little over 70 people on board, though the figure is still unclear, perhaps a little quieter than usual. The weather had deterred the less hardy, changing their minds about their journeys, choosing instead to stay by their firesides, safe and warm, waiting out the storm. The train slowly set off, approaching the beginning of the bridge. As storm winds gusted around the station buildings, the signalman watched as the long train began to cross the Tay at just after 7.15. He watched as the winds screamed around the high girders of the crossing, the sea rough beneath. After only a few seconds, he looked on, horrified, as sparks began to fly from the train or the track, following a blinding light which made him briefly look away. Then there was nothing but the dark and the high screams of the wind. The signalman at Wormit tried contacting the signal station at the other end of the bridge, but all communication lines were lost. In Dundee, the station master wired his company. Terrible accident on bridge. One or more of high girders blown down. I'm not sure as to the safety of last train down from Edinburgh. We'll advise further as soon as can be obtained. As quickly as possible, a search was held. The midsection of the bridge lay in the waves with the train. There were no survivors. Chilling photographs of the time show the fallen bridge in the waters of the Tay. All had vanished into the depths of the river. Thirteen sections of the great bridge having collapsed into the water scattered like match wood. Of the seventy or so people on board, passengers and crew, only fifty-nine were ever named. Forty-six bodies were recovered. The rest vanished forever into the cold waters of the Tay, perhaps taken out to the North Sea by the strong current. David Nish would be found soon after, but little Bella was held by the sea for three more weeks before her tiny remains appeared at Wormit on the Fife side of the estuary. In her dress pocket still a shiny penny and a little gold brooch. The architect-engineer, Sir Thomas Brooch, was held responsible and ruined 
dying in shame a year after. The cause of the tragedy, what exactly caused the bridge to collapse, is debated to this day. The tragedy shocked Victorian society, especially, of course, in Dundee. The local self-styled poet and tragedian, now fondly remembered as Scotland's worst ever poet, William McGonagall, was moved to write a number of verses commemorating the tragedy. His most famous is still widely remembered to this day and is still quoted, including an incorrect mortality figure. Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay, Alas, I am very sorry to say, that ninety lives have been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. Perhaps not quite the epitaph the families of the victims had in mind. A new bridge was built, next to the stumps of the old, you can still see them to this day, and opened to no fanfare or celebration in 1887. The engine, the 224, was apparently recovered from the depths and put back into service. The first person to drive it was Robert Marshall, whose brother John had perished on board, serving as the fireman on that terrible night. Superstitious engine crew tried avoiding this train, darkly nicknamed the Diver, until it was finally decommissioned in 1919. But why do I talk of this tragedy? Because of the stories that remain. Stories of a train, a steam train, that has been witnessed since that terrible day. A ghost train crossing the Tay. Not on the new current bridge, but next to it. On the bridge that no longer exists. The stumps of which rise up like a stark memorial from the waves forever repeating its doomed final journey. The train is reported as solid looking, steam flying from the engine, maybe a shrill whistle shrieking as the train crosses the dark depths only to suddenly plunge downwards, dim figures lit inside the carriages, blinking out like candles in the dark. The train, it seems, is still trying to reach Dundee every 28th of December, to reach the station where it was to be terminated. A cruel reenactment, if true, of a terrible tragedy that happened in a very bleak midwinter. Good night. Best wishes to you for 2021. Let us hope a better year, a year of hope and well-being. Season's greetings and lang may your lum reek.
That was Gordon Stewart. Check out his blog at borderlandscotland.wordpress.com. This episode was written by Gordon Stewart. It was produced and radiophonically designed by me, Nick Cole Hamilton. This is a You Better Run Media production. Happy holidays and join us again soon for more Tales from Weird Scotland.